Well, good morning to you all. Our text this week comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 1. And please, can you turn there now, or next time I won't say please. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to look into your word today, I pray that you would give us those special spiritual eyes of understanding. And Lord, that you would give us open hearts to take what we see and keep them in our hearts and live them in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, is there anyone here who knows what an algorithm is? Yes, we do. Now, but I'm afraid to ask you because I've been reading some of the stuff in your column. I'm worried what you might say. So, I've got a, I've got an, a definition here. There we go. It is a process or a set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. Now, you might think that algorithms have nothing to do with you, but they do, because nearly everybody here has a smartphone or a watch or a computer, and guess what is an important part of the programs that run those? Algorithms. Okay, and the next time that you're sitting at the traffic light waiting for, for the light to change, just remember that it's an algorithm that's holding you up. Okay, because it's an algorithm that takes into account the time of the day and the projected traffic flows and whether or not a vehicle has been detected by those lines in the road, etc., before it finally decides to turn the light green. And by the way, has anybody else noticed that it's the lights outside the council offices that are the slowest to change in the whole of town? While the example I've got on the screen behind me looks jolly complicated, if you look carefully, it's really just a thing that we know of as a flowchart. And basically it just revolves around just two words, if and then with a condition or conditions in between. And really it just means if such and such happens, then do this. If it doesn't, then do that. Now that's very simple. But algorithms, it turns out, are not confined solely to the physical realm. Today, we're going to be looking at a heavenly algorithm, one that just like computers and traffic lights, we need to rely on every day. In fact, we will rely on it for eternity. So let's read from 1 John chapter 1. And although we'll be looking more closely at chapter 9, um, in the end, uh, I'm going to read from verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now we can immediately see that in the introduction to this letter that John is very careful to establish that he has the necessary experience to write it. It isn't just his opinion or his life experience. No, he's, he's heard the man Jesus speak. He has seen the man Jesus do so many things and he has touched that man. We read about him actually resting his head upon Jesus' chest. So John is saying that he is writing with an authority that very few men could claim. And this means that the words that we're reading here are true and worthy of belief. So why do you think that he goes to such pains to claim this authority? Well, it must be because he has something really important to tell us. What is it? Where will we find it? Perhaps John is going to construct a, a complicated and intriguing plot that leaves us hanging right until the very end where there's a thrilling twist. Or maybe the message is buried so that only careful study and reflection will reveal it. Well, of course not. That's silly. If you've got something that defines the shape of your whole message as something really big, then the obvious thing to do is to say it straight away, isn't it? And therefore we must pay particular attention to what we're reading here in the first part of this letter. Now you might be saying, okay Dave, so we're going to see something really important here. But there are lots of things about God that are important. So help us out. Give us a clue. Where are we going? Well before I do that, for the sake of a good answer, I think it will be helpful at this point to take a broad brush view of First John. To begin with, we know from the way that John addresses his readers later in this letter, his intention is to build up those who are already believers in Christ. So, insofar as a theme is concerned, this book can be summarized by just one word, and that's fellowship. Of course, with God, not just friends between believers. Then if we join importance, intention, and theme together, we get this picture that we're going, to exp we're going to learn something vital about the fellowship of believers with God. Now that word fellowship has a number of meanings, but for the purposes of the sermon, we're going to say that it means the companionship of persons on equal and friendly terms. Hmm. Friendly and equal. What would it take for us to be friendly and equal with God? Well, I think we need to be very specific here because we don't want to get misled by this definition of fellowship. When I'm talking about equality with God, I trust it, it's well understood that I'm doing so in a general sense because it's, it's hopefully very obvious that we can neither aspire to nor achieve the fullness of his power and might. We are never ever going to be jolly mates swapping stories of creating universes over a beer. Hey, let me tell you about this place called New Zealand in a little planet called Earth. No, that's never going to happen. So if equality can't be about arm strength, then what is it about? 
There's only one other option since he is the greater and we are the lesser. The equality that is meant in our definition of fellowship must actually mean that in some way we are going to meet his standards in some way to be equal to those or he will not want to have anything to do with us. As my late father was very fond of saying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So, what is the tune? What are the necessary standard or standards that need to be met? Well, John has very helpfully supplied that for, right, for us right away. He writes, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Of course, the light being spoken of here cannot be defined by watts like the bathroom light. It's a far more precious pure and sublime light, the light of God's perfect holiness. And it shines because of his inability either to be evil or to tolerate evil. And John goes on to explain that unless we meet God perfectly in the space, then there is no possibility of any fellowship ever happening. (laughs) Oh dear. Now we have a huge problem because inasmuch as God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. From his perspective, as fallen sinners who have rejected him, we are exactly the opposite. We are darkness, and in us there is no light at all. We are on one side of the Grand Canyon, and he is on the other, and no amount of climbing or scrambling is going to get us to the other side, because no matter or how fit or how strong we are, the size of the whole will always defeat us. And please, make no mistake here. You need to understand that it's more than just him on the other side and us over here just doing our own thing. God isn't merely keeping us away from him because we're not up to his standard. It's not different strokes for different folks. No, the Lord hates our sin. And he promises an awful punishment for it. We might not be able to get over there, but scripture promises that one day he is certainly going to come over here to enact his judgment. And we will not be able to resist. Are we doomed forever? No. Praise God. Once again, John supplies the answer. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. It's a considerable understatement to say that we are more than fortunate that God's intention for us has always been fellowship with him. In the very beginning, he created us for just that purpose. But we thought that going our own way was a better idea. And that broke the special relationship that we had with him forever. Forever, that is, until God acted to restore us to rescue us from the other side of the canyon. And he did this by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross, to shed his blood on our behalf, taking on himself our punishment and cleansing us from all our sin, as it says here. All our sin. What does that mean? Because if we think about it, there are two directions in time for our sin. What we have done, and what we still do, what we continue to do. There are sins we have committed up to the moment of salvation, that moment 
when we say, yes, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I confess my sin and I repent of it. I will follow you and you alone for the rest of my life. At that very moment, in the blink of an eye, all of the filth that we have accumulated is washed away and remembered no more. And at that very moment, we have perfect fellowship with God again, just as he intended. (laughs) But we don't stop, do we? We carry on sinning day by day, hour by hour, and moment by moment. What happens about those sins? Well, guess what? John tells us that too, and his answer is the verse that I want to focus on today. Verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back at the beginning of the sermon, I was waffling on about algorithms. And I said, at their most basic, they are if, condition, then statements. I promised you we'd talk about a heavenly one. And here it is in verse 9. If we confess our sins, the confession is the condition, then God is faithful and just to forgive them. Well, that's cool. So if I have a little once a month ritual just before I have my monthly bath, then all will be well. Sorry, but that's wrong thinking. Confession can't be a scheduled event. It must be a continuous process. It's the only way to deal with similarly continuous sin by ongoing and constant confession. And if we look into the Greek that this text is written in, it confirms that because it's written in the present tense. If we confess now, right now, and continuously right now, is what the tense is telling us. And that ought to provoke a question. What happens when I don't continuously confess? For whatever reason. Well, if we look at verse 6 and 7, we see an answer. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, failure to confess damages our fellowship with God. If we truly desire to walk in fellowship with God at all times, then it must be a walk on his terms, not our own. And that has to mean walking in the light along with him, not running along the side from shadow to shadow, hoping he won't notice. To always be in the light, we need to be continuously aligned with his ideals, striving for holiness, seeking righteousness and forsaking sin, doing those good works that he has given us to do. We simply cannot expect to do things our earthly and fleshly way and still be on the same page as our Heavenly Father because then we deliberately choose to step into the darkness, to step away from fellowship with Him. And that's a lonely and scary place to be and it's quite unnecessary too. There's a phrase that I hear quite regularly from fellow Christians concerning the feeling that they seek, that they understand to be fellowship with God and there are a number of versions God didn't show up in the service today or they might say the obvious God showed up in the service today or perhaps you'll hear 
oh, I didn't really discern the, discern the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think you know the sort of things that I mean. Now, I don't want you to mistake that I'm going to mock these sentences because these brothers and sisters are merely seeking a connection with the Lord and we all want that and we all know that it's very special when it happens. But I do want to try to correct some kind of wrong thinking. I want to say that we need to understand fellowship with God to be much larger and more constant than just a warm feeling we might or might not have on a Sunday. Life is full of experiences and feelings and actions. Some of them are very ordinary, some of them are very intense, and some do genuinely come by a touch from the Lord. But feelings are not the only place where we find connection with God. He doesn't just show up now and again when the mood takes him, or we have found the right combination of special words of Christianese and in a particularly long prayer, or the right posture of humility, or maybe because we put the most in the collection box. The wonderful truth is that he is right there alongside us all of the time, sharing joy and sorrow and monotony alike. If we do not sense him, it is on us, because his intentions and conduct will never separate us, no matter what happens. We must look to our own behaviour if we need to know why that connection seems absent. And what we can see from this passage is that any large, any lack must depend on how we manage our need for confession. We must be diligent to confess because God does not ever stop hating sin, not for an instant and not even for what we might consider little sins. When we fail to take up God's loving offer of endless grace for whatever reason, for laziness or shame or often just plain willfulness, the truth is that our relationship with him suffers. When we are stained by sin, we are neither able to properly serve him nor savour him. And that's a really silly place to be in because all we ever need to do is confess. Forgiveness and restoration is just a tiny moment away. It's simple, it's easy. You can do this in the comfort of your own home. It's just like putting stuff in the dustbin like you do every day. It's not something you think about too hard. You open the packet of sausages, put the sausages in the frying pan, and then you leave the packet on the counter for a few weeks until you get around to throwing it away. No? No, you put it in the bin immediately because the packet is nasty. It's full of blood and sausage ooze, and so you need to get rid of it before it makes a mess. And that's how it ought to be with sin ooze too. Get rid of it now, straight away, before it stinks the place out. Have an immediate confessation with God, a conversation of confession. And since we're using this word confess such a lot, what does it actually mean in practical terms? Well, it does not mean going into a small room and telling somebody else your sins through a little window and then doing penance. Because no one else is needed except you and God and a distinct openness of heart on your part. And that openness is very important 
You see, the Greek word used here for confess literally means to say the same thing as another person, to agree with someone's statements, to acknowledge or admit the truth of an accusation. Say the same thing, to agree, to admit. And that's very appropriate, isn't it? Because God already knows when we've done something wrong. It's not hidden from him. What he is longing for is that you agree with him and admit that it is wrong. If we somehow believe that we are revealing something that's hidden, we're mistaken because God knows about the sin before we do it. And he really wants us to get rid of it so that we can have that fellowship restored as soon as possible. God wants to walk with us all of the time. That's his desire. And out of the only two choices, walking with him or walking without him, I know which one I choose. And I want to be sure to explain that confession is a much more penetrating process than merely agreeing with God in your head. That's merely a thing called admitting. There is no submission involved at all. I can admit that I stole some cake from the kitchen, Mum, but there is actually no need for me to be sorry because it tasted really good and I'll probably do it again. No, confession is more visceral, it's deep in the guts, it requires work and openness at the level of the spirit and the heart that aligns us with God's holy hatred of the confessed sin. Confession proclaims our sorrow for having committed it and it steals our determination not to do it again, to have rid of it for good. True confession requires that there is a desire to be cleansed and changed and that desire will not be there unless we have been born again by the blood of Jesus. Therefore the desire to confess is an evidence of genuine salvation. That's a good thing to know because sometimes we wonder. At this point I think it's time for a little commercial break because I've been talking a lot about confession and sin and I'm conscious that it may have awoken some familiar and possibly unpleasant feelings. Perhaps you feel the same way as I do about my own tiresomely frequent failings. Oftentimes I feel so filthy that I cannot imagine that God wants to have anything to do with me at all. No, much, no matter how much I might confess and my mind gets drawn to scriptures like Proverbs 26 that says that like a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I'm sorry if that's a bit graphic, but unfortunately, and honestly, that's sometimes how I feel. I must be that fool because I keep repeating those sins. And perhaps God has had enough and abandoned me to that sin that just seems to go on and on and on. I'm too blackened to be any good at all. But I was very blessed in my study for the sermon to come upon a text in the book of John. Chapter 13, verse 10. And I hope that you will be blessed too. You'll be very familiar with the scene. You don't need to, to turn there, I don't think, because it's about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You know, he gets up from the table where he's been having supper with the disciples, 
He takes a towel and a basin of water and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, try to imagine that as though you were there. How very surprising and confusing and humbling that would be. Here's your, your Lord, your leader, doing this very menial thing for you. It's not surprising that Peter, who is a man who is well known for opening his mouth before putting his brain into gear, he has a little outburst. You shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answers like this. He says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Now I know that's kind of a confusing sentence, and I also know that if we just read this, it comes across as a wonderful demonstration of humility and service from the very heart of the Lord. But actually there's a much more important message. Jesus is painting a very graphic and comforting picture when he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. What does he mean? For the benefit of knowing what is coming next, we understand that Jesus is not talking about what was actually happening in that moment. He was pointing forward to the washing away of sin by his blood. And that blood makes us completely and permanently spotless. It's a condition that cannot be changed and does not need to be changed because our sins are washed away forever. But think back to what I said earlier about sins we have done and sins that we are doing or going to do. The Lord knows that we will continue to get our feet dirty, as it were, with sin as we journey through the rest of our life here on earth. It's like that annoying moment at quarter to twelve at night. You've just had that monthly bath and then you've sunk into your nice warm bed but you realise, bother, you've forgotten to put the car in the garage and lock the door. So, you dash outside in your PJs and your bare feet but it's been raining. And so there's muddy feet to deal with before you can jump back into bed. Bother, said Pooh. Now as irritating as that is, the reality is that it's just a small part of you that's soiled and it's only a moment's work to sort it out. That's what Jesus means and that's what Jesus does. His death on the cross made us clean, but when our feet get muddy on the way to the garage with sin, and they certainly will because it's our fleshly nature, he is standing by to wipe them clean again immediately. If, if, we confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hmm. What a wonderful and helpful scripture this is to get the Lord's perspective of me when I see myself as a blackened and crippled and useless figure. Jesus sees me as clean and strong and upright 
because he made me so. But more often than not, with a little mud on my feet. But there's no problem. He can wipe that away. And he will. Just as soon as I admit that it is both there and it is dirty. Does it mean that I should go and willfully jump in puddles? No, of course not. That is a terrible idea. It belittles Jesus to the status of our servant when he is in fact our Lord and Saviour at a very great cost to his own life. Friends, confession is not a chore. It is a joy because it returns us to fellowship with the Lord. What can be more sublime than that? What do we need more than that? What is more urgent than that? And since it is all these things and more, I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm going to finish right here. But in closing, I'm going to ask you, please, to stand. Please will you stand and join me in a public confession. We will read Psalm 51 together. Have mercy upon me, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, against you only, I have sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you do not despise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this marvelous gift, for this marvelous access that you have given us that if we confess our sins, you wipe them away. And that then we walk with you, Lord, 
I wish that we could just really understand what that means, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to give a glimpse of what a huge thing that is, what a marvelous and precious thing that is. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring to mind our sins and remind us too of our need for confession. Lord, don't let us put these things off. Let's deal with them straight away. And let's do so for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.